Honestly, what is more disrespectful to America? Kneeling during the national anthem or Fergie singing the national anthem? At the twilight's last gleaming. And see, what, what's trending right now on social media is lefty saying, Fergie sang the national anthem that America deserves. Nobody, and I mean nobody, deserves to hear that rendition of the Star Spangled Banner except ISIS and payday lenders. <laughs> Welcome into the program. Little sister Lauren Huff is across the way. We're broadcasting from the West Texas Accessory Depot studios. Go see the folks at Accessory Depot on 82nd and Valencia and Lubbock. Other side listeners can get a free row of WeatherTech liners with the purchase of a bed cover. Call them at 806-866-9494. That's 806-866-9494 and WTAccessoryDepot.com. Full show ahead for you today. Coming up in a little bit, Texas Republican Lieutenant Governor Candidate Scott Milder will join us. We'll talk Texas politics with Scott Braddock of the Quorum Report, Brandon Darby of Breitbart, Texas, who will be discussing a story he just broke, an IED bomb was discovered on a border bridge between Laredo and Nuevo Laredo. And we'll get into some Blue Collar Bill's weekly report as we close out the program today. But first, the political eyes of Texas are upon the panhandle as we head into primary voting and election day on March 6th. There, up on the high plains, is one of the state's last bastions of rural republicanism that is legislators that... A, still vote their rural districts, and B, are Republicans. The state's trend has been for Austin-based groups that call themselves quote-unquote conservative, but really aren't interested in conserving much of anything, especially rural interests. These groups flood regions with enormous expenditures in mailers, commercials, Facebook ads, and the like, in an effort to unseat rural members and to essentially own their successors. These groups, like Empowered Texans, have invaded the Panhandle over the past couple of months. The Panhandle is virgin terrain for these groups. The Panhandle, which has its own storied political history, has never seen this kind of political machinery. And so the question becomes, will the Panhandle hold? And to answer that question, we have to consider the region's history and the shape of things currently. The region itself sits up above the Caprock, what author S.C. Gwynn has described as the turreted rock towers that gate the fabled Llano Estacado, a dead flat, high altitude tableland larger than Indiana. Once a vast, trackless, and featureless ocean of grass, once populated exclusively by the Comanches, the least friendly Indians on the continent. These people of the Panhandle still have memories of the worst hard times. They know the necessity of political and economic prudence to the extent that conservative really does mean to conserve. These people are conservative. Whatever political tides have flooded Texas for as long as there's been a Texas, the tides have continually slammed against the Caprock Wall and haven't gone much further than Lubbock. Back in 1952, just a few decades previously, the region was still considered Comancheria. 
The panhandle aligned themselves as Shivercrats with Democratic Texas Governor Alan Shivers in voting for Republican presidential candidate Dwight Eisenhower over Democratic candidate Adlai Stevenson, mostly due to Stevenson's position on Texas rights to oil off of the Third Coast in the Tidelands controversy. Of the 16 counties that bucked Lyndon Johnson for Barry Goldwater in 1964, eight were in the Texas panhandle. Goldwater begot Ronald Reagan, who the region then backed in 1976 when Reagan primaried Gerald Ford. The Panhandle has a history of bucking Texas trends and often playing fortune teller for the state's future political course. Prescient bucking, quote-unquote, that's how Brandon Runninghouse, a professor of political science at the University of Houston, has described that region to me. And he rattled off more examples of bucking, of this prescient bucking, from voting for John Connolly for governor in 1962 to the pride of Castro County, Kent Hance, switching to the GOP in 1985. In 1984, the region elected State Representative John Smithy, who is now the second longest-serving Republican in the Texas House. But panhandle bucking has at times proven as costly as it has prescient. This time, it's your airbase. Next time, it'll be your zip codes. That's how Smithy, who's now 66, recalls Lyndon Johnson's warning to the defiant region days after his re-election. Orders to close Amarillo Air Force Base came just days after gutting thousands of jobs and an approximate $20 million payroll. This past weekend, longtime Amarillo Globe News columnist John Mark Ballou wrote, State representatives, State representatives Ken King of Canadian and Four Price of Amarillo have token opposition in the March 6th primary. King is disliked because he champions rural public schools. They are worried that Price, an open-minded conservative who can't be bought, will one day be Speaker of the House. This is just a shot across the bow. He continues, Empower Texans is practically apoplectic on State Senator Kel Seliger, Republican Amarillo, who's been in the Texas Senate since 2004. Even though he's agreed with Patrick on almost all issues, including what Blue calls the silly bathroom bill, he's a thorn in the side of the lieutenant governor on school vouchers. And then Blue rumbled, so if they, these groups like Empowered Texans, can just get these pesky rural Republicans out of office... The kingdom is theirs. And I agree with Ballou's assessment, particularly in power being crazy about Seliger. But there's someone else who's also apoplectic about Seliger. And that someone is Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who walks political lines hand in hand with empowered Texans. Back in October, Ken King sat down with his hometown newspaper, and King was ready to buck. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick is a carpetbagger who came from Maryland and changed his name from Danny Gove to be in politics. King went on with the Canadian record, completely aware that he was on record. He was fending for Seliger, who King believes was, quote, punished for not carrying the water for Patrick in the last session. 
King continued, Patrick basically ran the Senate like a dictatorship. If you didn't go along, you didn't get recognized, and your bills didn't pass. Selger held the ground in the Senate, and he paid the price for it. He took it on the chin to do the right thing for his district. The ground that Selger held was opposition to school vouchers, as well as mandates to hold local rollback elections before property tax revenues could increase by 5%, legislation many perceived to be a new threat to rural zip codes. The punishment King and others believe Seliger received culminates in an Austin think tank effort to unseat him. Two GOP primary opponents have emerged in Seliger's dumbbell-shaped rural district, really the craziest district in Texas. It goes Amarillo down the New Mexico line and then takes in a big swath of the basin. A theory here is that Victor Leal, a panhandle restaurateur, will carve into Seliger's support in the northern part of the district, up near Amarillo, so that Mike Cannon, a former Midland mayor, can win the seat without a runoff. And as Amarillo Globe News' Robert Stein reported, Leal's campaign is being run by a Patrick campaign consultant. Now, first of all, this about Patrick and consultants. His consultant back in 2004, or excuse me, back in 2014, uh, after a poll had come out, and his consultant described that poll as this, David Dewhurst won where there's cows and horses. We won where there are people. Secondly, what is beginning to be understood is that Leal was on the board for Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is an empowered Texas think tank. And he was on this board from 2010 to 2017. TPPF, during the time in which Leal was on the board, fought funding for uh, the Competitive Renewable Energy Zone, the CRES, the wind energy project in the Panhandle. While working stridently against the Panhandle's CRES, it's no surprise that TPPF's political arm, Empowered Texans, was making strong arguments against the CRES funding at the same time. And TPPF by the way, also fought and continues to fight against public education amongst other regional interests and did so throughout Leal's tenure there. So it's absolutely reasonable for people to believe that Leal is a plant in this race. And folks up there, those folks who are politically and economically prudent are beginning to figure it out. So will the panhandle hold? I think it will. Will it prove costly? It probably will. Redistricting is just a couple of years away. But at least they'll save their zip codes in the meantime. Stick with us. Other side of Texas news coming up right after the break. And then we'll get in with Scott Milder, candidate for lieutenant governor. Be back. Oh, about 90 seconds. When you're best friends with the founder of the Lubbock County Militia, you get your own radio show. It's The Other Side of Texas with Jay Leeson. I took a double take out on the interstate. Hey 
there. This segment is brought to you by Title One, Lubbock's digital real estate and title escrow company. Title One is committed to providing you with the highest level of communication and service from the time the contract opens until it closes. See how Title One can serve your realty, consumer, and lending needs at TitleOne.com. On the line with us now is a Republican candidate for Lieutenant Governor. He is Scott Malder. Scott Milder, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jay. Thanks for having me. Uh, where are you calling us from? I am calling from Dallas, Texas today. Okay. How's the weather? Mm-hmm. You know, it's windy, and it's holding steady, but uh, rain is coming. Okay. Well, I wish rain would come up here. Can you make? Can that be your first promise? If you're elected, it'll rain more often here? <laughs> you know what? Uh, if that'll turn out some votes, I'll go, ahead and, I'll go ahead and throw that out there. Why not? Okay. Well, I've yeah. I've heard flimsier yeah. campaign promises. Uh, so, <laughs> Scott, take just a second and tell folks about your background and sure. uh, yeah, tell us about your background. We'll go from there. Sure. Well, I grew up in Austin, Texas. Uh, two uh, two degrees from the University of North Texas. I wasn't uh, wise enough to head out to head out to Lubbock, uh, but uh, but but my kids may uh, may give that some consideration. Um, and uh, I was a public information officer for two different uh, two different school districts. I have a journalism and uh, I have a degree in journalism and a degree in public relations. And I've been a uh, partner in an architectural firm for the last twenty years, where where uh, I've spent a lot of time working with uh, very diverse uh, diverse personalities uh, in diverse ge- geographies, uh, helping people uh, work uh, through complex problems and find common ground. Uh, 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 real solutions to those difficult challenges that they face. Okay, so you decide you're yep. going to run for lieutenant governor. How did you come to that decision? And when? Well, when did you come to that decision, and why? Right. Well, it wasn't a decision I took lightly. Obviously, it's a huge decision, and it's a huge job and responsibility. And uh, I guess the short story is I, I've, I've been involved with in many, many conversations through the 2017 legislative season. Um, and not a one of them, not a one of those conversations that did, did I have with anyone who was pleased with the direction that our lieutenant governor uh, led the Senate. Uh, they were, everybody I've spoken to all across Texas in my travels are frustrated with uh, with our lieutenant governor's uh, political priorities and uh, how out of sync they are with uh, with our Texas values. And uh, so after uh, after good long consideration and talking to many many people. Um, uh, I decided to throw my name in the hat and uh, give Texans a choice on the ballot. Okay, so early voting starts tomorrow. Tell us about what your what is campaigning been like. I mean, how many miles do you think you've logged? Yeah. Uh, I've logged thousands and thousands of miles. Uh, but you know, it, campaigning is especially. Uh, I have to say, it was intimidating when I got started because it's such it's such a large state and such a big job. Uh, but every, like I said, everywhere I've been, I've, I've been received really well. People are excited, uh, by the prospects of having somebody to, somebody other than our current lieutenant governor on the ballot. And, uh, just many, many Texans just want to see, see our state Senate get, get back to the business of, of running the state of Texas. And, uh, it's just been, it's been exhilarating and exhausting, uh, over the last few months. Tell me, give us the elevator pitch. Um, what are your top three priorities, Scott Milder? Well, my top three priorities, uh, first of all, the overall one is, uh, is like I just said, to get the Texas Senate back to business. 
and focused on 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 our most pressing priorities, which in my mind, uh, property tax relief in the form of real property tax reform and proper state funding of public education, uh, their uh, their unwillingness to properly fund public education from the state level. Um, has caused a lot of this property tax crisis mess that we're in. And so those two things go hand in hand. I don't know if that's one or two priorities, but, but funding public education and providing real property tax relief are, 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 are two for sure. Um, and then, uh, and then a, a third one is, is our state needs to be focused much more intently on making sure that we have all the infrastructure in place in, in rural Texas and West Texas and the big cities and, you know, in the suburban areas. Uh, to make sure we can accommodate the uh, the massive population and massive growth uh, that's anticipated here over the next 30 years, and uh, the state's not focused a lot of attention on infrastructure. And then, and then this doesn't affect West Texas so much, but uh, even even most recently for economic development purposes, we have businesses who are uh, thinking twice about uh, moving in moving in along the Gulf Coast area because we don't have enough flood control measures in place. And so, so that's certainly uh, that's certainly something that needs to be looked at as well. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot there. Uh, I want to come back to a couple of things, but yeah. give me an idea of where you are on government regulations, Scott. Uh, what are some things that you would try to roll back as lieutenant right. governor? Oh boy, I tell you what, I I, uh, I feel like the fewer government regulations out there, the better. I think I think the state's job should be small, not large. It shouldn't loom over business and local communities' abilities to conduct conduct their business and make their decisions locally in the best interest of their communities. Um, uh, one of the things that's come up a lot over the last uh, uh, really six, eight, twelve months or so is uh, is is squeezing um, local uh, communities' ability to raise revenue, um, imposing more more strict uh, revenue caps. And uh, I don't believe that's the I don't believe that's the state's decision to make. Our voters are smart. Your voters. Out of West Texas are smart. They elect smart people uh, to handle the people's business. And uh, you know, if they go wrong and make make some decisions that are out of sync with uh, with the voters, and the voters have the opportunity to elect new leadership. And so, it's not the state's place to do that. It's uh, it, it's all on local communities. The state's job is uh, is is to provide infrastructure and education and and other 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 vital services. Uh, but, but it's not it's not to regulate our local communities or 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 uh, or, or overregulate our, our business community. That's Scott Milder, who is a candidate, a Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, right here on other side of Texas. People will disagree with you there, Scott, and say no, that's absolutely the state's right. The state's right is to put in place measures on cities and counties, and property tax caps, uh, appraisal yeah. caps are. One of those measures that the state can handle from Austin, um, you're, are, am I hearing you say it's the state's not able to do it, or the state shouldn't do it? No, the state's able. No, the state state's certainly able to do it. I don't think the state should do it. Okay. Uh, we, we we don't we don't need to strangle our local communities' ability to govern their local communities. Um, and, and there's all kinds of negative effects to um, uh, uh, forcing uh, forcing a cap on local revenue. Uh, uh, just just one of many is uh, it hurts it hurts bond rating. Uh, you know bond ratings suffer if uh, if local communities, municipalities, uh, and such can't can't uh, are restricted.
restricted from raising revenue, then bond then, then bond rates suffer. And so there's many reasons. You know, ebbs and flows, and, and communities that are highly dependent on oil and gas, they have they have they have highs and lows. And and if the state says you can only have a two per two and a half percent swing, um, then uh, they're not going to be able to. You know, they'll never know from one year to the next. Well, uh, whether or not they can fund their fund their local budget. Scott, one thing I took exception to was, I think that the argument's fair enough uh, to let locals vote. Okay, uh, let them have a free and fair election. But Scott, I'm looking at I'm looking at what folks in outside and awesome base interests are jumping into all these races, uh, yeah. pouring money and mailers into all these races up here. I mean, I, we just got done with the segment talking about Ken King in Canadian, Four Price in Amarillo, Seliger in the Panhandle and down into the Basin on the Senate side. Um, my problem there, Scott, was that these same people saying, oh, let the locals vote, let them have a free and fair election... Uh, they wouldn't say a word if these outside interests j- got into those uh, elections and sent in mailers. Uh, they wouldn't say a word about it. I mean, shouldn't they at least mm-hmm. sign a pledge that, okay, we're going to go for Senate Bill 2 again, but this time we're going to take a pledge that that the people, many of whom receive campaign funds from these same people, uh, will speak up against those interests? You know, one of the things that uh, one of the things that I've learned on this campaign trail, and I suspected for a long time, was that there was some pretty underhanded activity going on in our uh, uh, in our in our political community. And uh, the further along this this campaign trail I've gone, the more of uh, that ugly underbelly I have seen. There is an there's a choreographed, orchestrated effort uh, by a very small group of of Texans to acquire complete control over our state government and uh, a lot of these races you're seeing um, uh, a lot of these races you're seeing where uh, where rational uh, particularly rational Republican Texans are being challenged those those candidates are being funded and supported by this by this small but mighty and well-funded machine isn't that I heard I heard let me interrupt for just a second I heard a a candidate the other day referred to this as an oligarchy, like this is Russian oligarchy buying yeah. seats and go. Is do you agree with that? Uh, you know, I, you know what I do. It, it, I mean, essentially, that's exactly what it is. It, I uh, I live in Senate District Two, um, and my senator, uh, who I oppose, who I'm opposing, I'm I'm going to vote for his challenger, is being challenged by who I somewhat I call a rational Republican. Um, but uh, but the incumbent is supported by this machine that I'm talking about, and I get a I get a mailer from him every two or three days. A mailer. I had one on my doorstep today. I missed them. They came by, and knocked on the door. Uh, get phone calls. There's radio. I mean, they're spending tons and tons of money to keep the incumbent uh, to protect that incumbent seat, and uh, it, it's just it, it it's a, it, it's just phenomenal to me. It's mind blowing how much money is being spent to retain seats and to win seats uh, against. Some 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 very very well respected Texas incumbents who maybe didn't vote uh, who maybe didn't vote to support uh, the bathroom bill or or what or, you know whatever else uh, whatever what happened other, to that uh, issue, issue Scott mm-hmm. like a year ago at this time all the mm-hmm. oxygen in the room was bathrooms but I've not heard that issue come up yet mm-hmm. in the primary what happened surprising right it's uh, well it's a lightning rod issue and the people who've been promoting that know. 
that it's a very emotionally divisive issue, and they're uh, they're just uh, you know kind of letting that letting that lie low so they can they can win re-election and win some more seats, and then they they're going to come back and double down on that issue um, in uh, in the 2019 legislative no, session. But not talking yeah. about it in the primary. Scott Milder no, is no. Scott Milder is running for lieutenant governor. Uh, on the Republican ticket. Go back to a couple of things here. Uh, you said that you wanted to go, your top priorities, reforming property tax by uh, yeah. redoing public education funding. Uh, and then you mentioned infrastructure. Scott, where is this money going to come from? Is this new money? Is the state essentially going to have to raise taxes in order to get public school funding where it needs to go? And do you support doing that tax raise? Right. I, you know what? I don't. I don't. I don't think a tax. I don't think a tax increase is necessary for that. I think it's a matter of prioritization uh, for our, our uh, well, for all school districts. I mean, for all communities, uh, school districts are absolutely the foundation of, of, of every community. Yeah. Uh, um, and but but especially especially in West Texas, rural Texas, deep East Texas, um, our, our public schools are 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 the community in many of those so, in many of those cities and towns, and so. So I, I believe we just have to reprioritize. Public education has just not been a priority under our current leadership, and I don't understand why. Because it is a very conservative, uh, traditionally Republican principle. It's a it's a constitutionally mandated uh, uh, responsibility of our state, and anything that's constitutionally mandated uh, is generally a conservative minded principle. So, so uh, but so which funds? do you deprioritize which funds do you tap into right. which bank accounts at the state sure. level well i think you, I, I think you got to look at look i think you got to look at everything and uh you know you know, you know uh, uh, look at all the different buckets where all the different monies are going to and, and and line them up this one's most important this one's the next most important but to start with here's what i would do all the money that is collected uh uh that is paid for public school tax dollars ought to be allocated back towards public ed dollars and uh, currently, the state is—it's uh, it, a significant revenue stream uh, for the state of Texas to fund other programs uh, to the tune of 2.8 billion dollars just over this last year. And so, well, I think one of the things we need to do is let's uh, let's keep that 2.8 billion dollars in our public school system. That'll that'll go, that, that's a really good start, 2.8 billion. So, and then one other, yeah. Well, go ahead. Well, just a clarifier of that 2.8 billion, how much of that's actually making it into public education? None of that 2.8 billion. None of that is. That's uh, that's the that's the budget dust. <laughs> that's the school budget dust that doesn't make it back into public schools. A lot of the recapture money does make it back into public schools. You know, you, you we you know we collect the state collects money from property wealthy districts, and then it's supposed to reallocate that back out to the property poor districts that can't can't raise enough funds on their own. But uh, but the state's been skimming. They've been skimming off the top and leaving it in the general fund to fund other programs. And uh, I say, you know, we look at those other programs and let them have the funding challenge, and let let our public schools have have the funding that is paid uh, that is paid by taxpayers for that purpose. Okay. So uh, you know, one other one other one other place where I'll find money is I, I I plan to go back and look at all the unfunded mandates that have been passed on to school districts and and local local cities and others uh, over the last thirty years, and say, you know what, which ones of these actually have educational value, and all the ones that don't have value, we're going to repeal them which will create a lot of wiggle room uh, within existing budget structure. Okay. Uh, one of my final questions, I'll probably think of another one, but uh, 
<laughs> the knock on you, Scott Mulder, is that mm-hmm. the architectural firm that you mentioned, uh, that uh-huh. you've worked to pass a lot of school bonds, and therefore sure. you're criticized as uh, driving the debt in local communities. What do you make of that claim, and well, what would you say to those who claim it? I'd say I'd say those who are claiming that are grasping at straws and are and are are seriously worried that that I might actually pull off a victory on March sixth. Uh, the reality is that the, the state set up a system for local communities to pass fully funded locally local tax dollar bonds to build schools and other facilities as those communities desire. It's it's a strictly local decision. And uh, most communities don't do that very often. Uh, you know, once you know, once in a once in a, a very long while, do they uh, do they go go for a bond election? They just don't know how to do it. And so, so I I fell into this profession where I I help local communities facilitate through the proper planning of a bond program, so they can identify appropriate facilities and resources to then go and ask voters whether or not it's okay to uh, uh, to to build, and uh, that's um, I mean, that's that's the system we have set up, and that's the only way uh, that's the only way our local communities can can build and maintain and renovate and add on to add on to our school buildings. Scott Mahler, it seems to me that if we continue down the trek that we're on, uh, yes. if we continue down this road, we're going to have to start closing some schools to alleviate costs, um, and yeah. I think it's going to be rural schools that go first. Uh, and we'll move more to an Arkansas model where every school has to have X number of kids in it. Uh, that mm-hmm. would close a lot of rural communities. You, do you disagree with that assessment? You know, I don't disagree with that assessment, but I think it's a sad. It's sad that we have to have that assessment at all. Uh, there are many great communities that are small uh, in, in rural in West Texas. It, you know, there might be a thousand square miles with a hundred kids. So you're gonna you're going to close that school district and then ship them even further, you know, bus them even further over to the, to the nearest school district. Uh, you know, that's a, it's, one of the great, it's one of the great things about our state of Texas is that, that we have this system set up where every kid has an equal opportunity to attend a local district school and have pride in that school and, you know, community and town pride in that school. You know, and as the school goes, so goes the community. So if these schools close up, then so does the community. Early voting is yeah. about to kick off. Scott Milder, tell people where they can find out more about you. Yep. Uh, yeah, uh, visit my website, Scott Milder, the number 4, com, or uh, visit me at the same uh, at the same same name at uh, on Facebook. You can find me there, at Scott Milder for TXLG. Okay, there he is. Any closing yeah. thoughts there, Scott, before we let you go? Well, Jay, I just want to say thank you for uh, thank you for inviting me on the show, and I just want to I, I just want to say that uh, I I fully grasp uh, the necessity of our public schools and local control for our local communities, particularly in in, in rural Texas. Uh, our rural Texas and West Texas West, West Texas communities play play an absolute vital role in the overall health of our state, and uh, we need to honor and respect uh, uh, their, their their place in the in in the success of Texas. There he is, Scott Mulder. Thank you for making time there. Thanks, Jake. We're going to go to a break now here on the other side. And on the other side, we'll get in with the Scott Braddock, editor of the Quorum Report. Lots to get into with him. Braddock on Texas. Stick with us. Be back. 
couple minutes right here. His class voted him most likely to run with scissors. Welcome back to The Other Side with Jay Leeson. I worked in Rexham three to midnight On the Corpus Christi Bay I'd get off and drink till daylight Hey, welcome back in to the West Keep Texas the Accessory Depot away. Studios. Go see the folks at Accessory Depot on 82nd and Valencia and Lubbock for all your car or truck accessory needs. And get this, other side listeners can get a free row of WeatherTech liners with the purchase of a bed cover. Call them, 806 806- 866-9494 WTAccessoryDepot.com He is Mr. Monday here on the other side of Texas. Scott Braddock, editor of the Quorum Report. How are you doing, Scott? Very well, Jay Leeson. How are you? Braddock on Texas. I love it. So Braddock on Texas. Tell me, what is, I'm hearing more and more about the granny tax. Tell, oh, us, yeah. what, tell us what that means, granny tax. Well, interesting. I uh, love the music you're playing there. Corpus Christi Bay. Uh, I'm also going to mention Houston, which was uh, mentioned in that song as well. These are some of the places that I have been over the past two and a half weeks or so. In addition to those cities, I was in Galveston, San Antonio, Dallas-Fort Worth, up in Amarillo, Wichita Falls, and even a little place called Atlanta, Texas, which I'm going to be honest, I had not heard of. But uh, it, it is where uh, one of these races is happening. My truck is putting uh, uh, putting a lot of miles on the truck. Did you did you make it to Hale Center? uh, I was not in Hale Center. Okay, Um, I can't make it to all. But let me do that one on the next trip. But the other thing I'm going to say about all the miles I'm putting on my truck is that in my passenger seat I have a stack of mailers. I'll send you all the pictures. The the attack mail pieces from your favorite group and my favorite group, the Pro Voucher Group, Empower Texans. Um, And you know a lot of the attacks that they are you know lobbying against Republican. Candidates are just silly, stupid, and you kind of roll your eyes and you, you, you move on, right? A lot of it's just noise. A lot of it's ridiculous. But one of the things that I've seen get a lot of attention and start to get a lot of traction is this idea that Republicans, and we're talking conservative lawmakers, that conservatives like Thor Price, Ken King, etc., that some of those folks voted to create a granny tax. So I was trying to remember, what was this all about? And, and you know, it, it's always... Um, some issue that may not really even be on your radar all that much, and then it comes up in a campaign, and you go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, Well, look, some people are angry about this. In fact, I've heard from some candidates and some block walkers for candidates who have had doors slammed in their faces over this, elderly Texans who are saying, you know, you voted to create a granny tax. Get out of here. I mean, they're angry. But, you know, even though the anger is real, the granny tax is not real. Let me me tell people what this was about. Yeah, so there was a bill... Um, that was uh, proposed by J.D. Sheffield, who is a doctor uh, from Gatesville, Texas. Um, And Sheffield, also a Republican, um, what he wanted to do was create a fund that would be set up by uh, basically a lot of the nursing homes around the state, if they chose to participate, would be able to put money into a pool, and then that would uh, create a matching fund so that about $850 million of our tax dollars from the federal government would come back down to Texas so that we could use it for high-quality care for some of the most vulnerable Texans. We're talking about people who have uh, Alzheimer's uh, and other diseases, so when they become, uh, you know, uh, senior citizens, and there's a lot of these folks, I mean, you know, they're suffering in these nursing homes, a lot of them, especially those who are the Medicaid patients, because they just don't have anything else. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, nobody wants to end up that way, 
but but you know being able to provide some extra care for them would be a good thing and the bill that Sheffield had proposed did not create any sort of a new tax it just said that those uh, nursing homes would pool their money to create this uh, mechanism to draw down uh, what is almost 900 million dollars uh, for these folks to offer them a little bit more help and and the bill even went a little bit further Jay it said that there could not be a granny tax the bill expressly prohibited setting up a fee uh, by these nursing homes it said that the nursing homes if they set up a fee for people uh, in the nursing homes that they would be sanctioned for doing so so it prohibited a granny tax the truth is the exact opposite of what people are seeing on these empower texans mailers but if people have seen these mailers they know what i'm talking about one of them uh, is a letter that says uh, and this was in ken king's district for example called it ken king's most despicable vote that he voted to permit nursing homes to assess a new fee for each bed in their facility so that the state could draw down federal funds and in turn give those funds back to the nursing home operators really really twisting the facts and you know as i said you know you look at some of these things and you think uh just silly nonsense but this one has been gaining some traction so it was time to set the record straight in my Hmm. opinion well scott braddock here with us on other side of texas let's uh shift gears right quick news today uh that the texas governor fighting hard against sarah davis down the houston Mm -hmm. way and uh state house representative uh, but then the House GOP caucus endorsed Sarah Davis today, right? Well, sort of. This is a really interesting thing where the chairman of the caucus may be trying to have it both ways. Let's let's tell people what happened. Um, Abbott is getting ready to have a rally tomorrow in Houston and another rally in Galveston the next day. Uh, the one in Houston is for the opponent of Sarah Davis, who you mentioned. The one in Galveston is for the opponent of Representative Wayne Faircloth. Uh, who the governor is supporting the uh, opponents of both of these people. Um, And on the eve of these rallies, the Texas House Republican Caucus issued statements of support for both Davis and Faircloth. I don't know if we can go as far as to say it's an endorsement. Um, The caucus was putting out statements of support for lots of the Republican members. And you might think, Jay, you and I might look at that and think, well, it's kind of just sort of a benign thing for them to do, right? I mean, they're just saying nice things about people who are their colleagues, who are their Republican colleagues, the people in the same party. Well, the um, top political consultant for Governor Abbott, a guy by the name of Dave Carney, New Hampshire resident, Carney uh, just exploded on social media this afternoon about this, and he hauled off and called the Republican caucus a bunch of Democrats. (laughs) Let me uh, read for you what he said. He said, quote, wow. TX Democrats endorsing Sarah Davis for re-election. This ought to help in the primary. Early voting starts Tuesday. Then for some reason, he apologized to the Texas House Democratic Caucus, saying that he must have had, quote, a brain freeze. (laughs) He said, quote, apologies to the TX House Democrats. Now, there's one other interesting bank shot about this, Jay, which is that members of the Freedom Caucus, including one of your favorites and one of my favorites as well, Jonathan Stickland, Republican from Bedford, um, took exception to the fact that his fellow Republicans were saying nice things about Wayne Faircloth. Uh, he said, quote, Wayne cannot be counted on. As a member of the Texas House Republican Caucus, I reject this statement. Wayne and his liberal record have to go. And then you had uh, Briscoe Kane, who's a Republican from Baytown down in the Houston area, also in Harris County, uh, who suggested that, look, and this is this is going to be important to remember for uh, for the future, he said that 
the Republican caucus members ought to be able to decide for themselves who to support, who to support for an elected office. Uh, he said, no, we don't want to see Sarah Davis back. Uh, it was mentioned on Quorum Report this afternoon that that stance would be in direct contradiction uh, to what they want, which is a united caucus whenever it's time to choose the next speaker. Hmm. Scott Braddock, editor of the Quorum Report, at Scott Braddock on Twitter, where you can go follow him, get all the news of Quorum Report. Uh, last thing I want to get into here is, you know, we talked about mailers. Um, Scott, it, it's not enough that Empower Texans, you don't know where a lot of the money comes from. But now, so we aren't going to disclose that, but now candidates who receive money uh, from them, are not reporting it, or not disclosing it? How does that work? Is is this going to get into some legal problems? Well, trying to figure out if this is a mistake or if this is something that was done intentionally. These campaigns have not uh, commented on this, but we had, uh, let's see, one, two, three, uh, at least four candidates who are being supported. I'm sorry, five candidates who are being supported by Empower Texans who underreported their uh, contributions they got from the PAC. Now, let's keep in mind, empower Texans in everything they do. When they say they're trying to shed light and give people more information, everything that they do and everything about the way they're set up is deliberately confusing. They run a political action committee, which does disclose donors and its contributions. They also run a 501c4, which does not disclose its donors, and a 501c3, which does not disclose its donors. But all three of those things are under the same name. They're all called Empower Texans. So, you, I mean, use your West Texas judgment. seems a little um, shady. Right. So when you look at these candidates, for example, uh, Drew Brassfield, who's running against uh, Ford Price, he received uh, $10,000 from the PAC. And we know that because my reporter, James Russell, who's in Dallas-Fort Worth, was looking through the reports, pouring through the campaign finance documents, and he could see that from the Political Action Committee of Empower Texans, they had given Brassfield 10000 But on Brassfield's report, he only reported raising 2000 from them. Uh, Brian Slayton, another example, uh, he's running against pensions chairman Dan Flynn. He got 25000 but for some reason he only reported 11000 Armin Mazzani, who's running against Giovanni Capriglione in Tarrant County in uh, the South Lake area, he got, listen to this number, he got 75000 from Empower Texans, according to the Empower Texans report, but on his report, he only reported 3000 So there are definitely some questions here. Hmm. So just coordinated across the board, it seems like. It Well, it some people could make that conclusion. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, and one, one thing that's going to be interesting to watch is, uh, of course, the next round of uh, campaign finance disclosures will come. Those reports will come uh, on the eight-day report, eight days before the election, and we'll see if uh, some of these things uh, have shaken out and have been corrected. Okay. So what else do we need to look forward to here, Scott, is early voting is about to kick off. Well, you're going to want to look at the turnout in um, the uh, Democratic and Republican primaries. Of course, you have seen uh, all the chatter about whether or not Democrats are really excited to turn out and vote this year. Um, I remain skeptical. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether or not there's going to be a Democratic wave in this state. When we start to see whether people are actually turning out, in these Texas House races, and especially in the congressional races in places like Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, where you've seen a ton of candidates, uh, you know, I think in the uh, race to replace Lamar Smith, for example, in the San Antonio area, there are 18 Republicans running for that. Uh, there's a whole passel of Democrats running as well. 
Uh, same thing is true over in Houston, uh, where John Culberson is up for re-election, a Republican congressman there. Uh, Pete Sessions has a bunch of Democrats running against him. If people really turn out in those Democratic primaries, we might see the actual evidence that there might be some sort of a Democratic wave coming. So far, all we've really seen is sort of the symptoms of voter enthusiasm, but not the real enthusiasm. One one of those symptoms, though, for every cycle it seems like, well, if the teachers show up, well, if the teachers show up, it looks to me... And I'm not willing to say all the way they are going to show up. They're certainly they're certainly showing signs of showing up. They're getting excited. You see a lot of the uh, activity on social media, but as we know, um, you know the, uh, click, the clicktivism, which some people have called it. <laughs> uh, you know it, that that only goes so far. You actually have to show up and vote, and uh, we'll start to see the real you know the proof in the pudding when uh, when these turnout numbers start to come in. Which you know one of the interesting things is. Uh, we don't get the election results, of course, until Election Day, but we can start to see how many people are actually lining up at the polls starting tomorrow. Hmm. He is Scott Braddock, at Scott Braddock on Twitter. Thanks as always, Scott. Good rundown. The pleasure is all mine, sir. Talk soon. All right. There he is, Braddock on Texas. I want to do a quick... Uh, I need to let you guys know about something. Something that... Well, back in... Uh, August, I was driving home alone from the station and uh, out on the highway. And it, it actually rained. I think that was the last time it rained. <laughs> being, being facetious. Out of nowhere, someone ran a stop sign and nailed me, just T boned me. And I don't know if you've ever been T boned, but you have some thoughts immediately. The first is, oh my goodness, I'm still alive. I can't believe it. The second is, you call 911. The third, you call your insurance agent. And after inspecting the damage, and I knew that it was totaled, my next thought was, I need a car guy. I had the first three, did all the first three, but didn't know who to call number four. But now I do. I made a shift. A shift to Derek Beard. And Derek's been in the car business for 20 years. He's worked on pavement lots, and he's installed the accessories and financed the deals. And now he's got his own dealership, Shift. Automotive Group in Lubbock, Derek and his team, are, they are honest brokers, especially when it comes to the unexpected. And he is a rarity in the car business. Real cars for real people at really great prices. Shift into something you know and something you can trust. There at Shift Automotive Group, just outside of Loop 289 in Lubbock on 58th Street. Check them out at shiftlubbock.com. Go to a quick break. We're going to get Brandon Darby in studio. An IED found on the bridge between America and Mexico. Have Brandon Darby coming up. One night in Kansas City, after we had played the show, shouts rang out. Hey, welcome back in the other side. This segment is brought to you by Flint Boot and Hat. They've been building hat since 1994 and repairing boots since, I guess, since forever. My dog chewed the heel of my boot and uh, the pulls on my boots and jared and his guys made my ostrich boots great again you can check them out at 303534 street flint so i want to get into something real quick uh brandon darby's in studio got a big story to talk about but 
as part of our Flint Boot and Hat segment, mm-hmm. I wanted to jump on a story that I found to be pretty fascinating. Little sister's got, she's senior at tech and she's doing some marketing. Yeah. Marketing strategies. And you're in a course where you had to make up your own social media site. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and come up with a new social media idea, right? Right. It's kind of hard. It's harder so, than you would think. What did you come up with? Well, my my group, we developed an app that would be useful for students. It gathered all of... It, it's it's an education app. <laughs> well, here's a good... Here's a good... I, I should say a novel social media idea. Trump supporters... This is the New York Post. Brandon Darby, you're welcome to jump in here. Trump supporters have a new dating app. That's right. A new dating app. A dating site that promises to, quote, make dating great again matches Trump-supporting singles looking for love. Quote, we believe that by matching patriotic and political viewpoints as a foundation of the relationship, it will allow one to focus on what really matters, conversation, commonalities, and if all goes well, courting. Trump dating states on its homepage. So the main picture is a man wearing a hat backwards, and it says Trump, and he's being hugged from behind by a woman wearing a pink Make America Great Again hat. The site touts 100% free registration, but only allows, quote, straight men and women to join. So, how about the making <clears throat> dating great again, Brandon well, I feel, You know, first off, I'm just going to say this, I'm 41 and single, and um, I do not use dating apps. <laughs> but I don't. I just don't. But, but because of my position, and I think people would make fun of me or something. It feels weird in my age group to use dating apps. I just wouldn't do it. But that said, uh, a lot of people do. And people who are Trump supporters tell me that they have a difficult time on some of the dating apps, because which really aren't dating apps. They're kind of hookup apps, really. But um, they have a difficult time, because once people realize they're a Trump supporter, they, you know, it... it it doesn't work out well for them or it ends dates or whatever. So it makes sense that they would have their own dating app. But at the same time, kind of like that, like uh, imposing social mores, like, uh, you know, they're only allowing straight people. Um, that's kind of strange, especially considering like the, the recent deal with the, the adult film industry star, uh, and the payment and all that. It's a little strange, right? From Trump's lawyer, from Trump's lawyer who just randomly paid this woman, $130,000 $130,000 who once gave an interview saying she had hung out with the president in that way um, <laughs> and then for some reason he just randomly gave her $130,000 and now she says it didn't happen so I, it just seems a little strange I don't know I mean if people are lonely and they wear red hats and they love Trump then I'm glad they have a place to congregate and I'm glad they have a place to you know to meet each other and maybe procreate you know like that's their <laughs> business like I'm glad that they have that. I don't really care what people do. It, it it doesn't affect me, you know, what what they do in their with their dating apps. I just don't care. I do. I mean, Trump. Whenever you say the word Trump, uh, people just lose their minds and they cannot even listen anymore. Um, well, some people do. Okay, half the people. I know. I get a lot of it um, from like. I might be talking about school finance, like talking like a Democrat about school finance in texas and they can't even hear we saw you in that red hat leeson you're a trump guy like just complete so i could understand how people would get harassed a lot uh by others on especially in some communities like if you lived in dc 
imagine how you would feel you know like you you want to go a place where you know everybody wants to go somewhere where where they're liked and appreciated and where they can if they're a trump supporter that applies to them too like they probably just want to you know i would imagine most of the people who are on that app are older white men um and that's great that they have a place to hang out you know like and wish there you know kind of like there's some bars like that in town where you go and there's just like dudes it's like there's no women in the bar it's just dudes and you walk in and you're like you know i wanted a beer and i think now i don't you know i think i just want to go home because i'm just going to be sitting here with a bunch of dudes you know and I, i have a suspicion that dating app will be a bunch of dudes you know yeah but you know what i i don't know that i want um my whole relationship based upon political views Right. I mean, something tells me the people who go to those apps probably aren't really considering long-term relationships. You know, that's not like swipe right, swipe left is not generally, you know, the the foundation of a long-term yeah. relationship. I'm sure they happen on those apps, but I think most of what happens on those apps is something a little, a little less, uh, a little less uh, life-consuming. It, what what happens on those apps sees fewer moons than a long term relationship would, you know. Mom, how'd you meet Dad? I swiped right. <laughs> you know, I just don't think it's going to happen. Jeez. I just don't see it. Oh man! So Brandon Darby here with us in studio. Improvised explosive device found at Border Bridge to Texas. Uh, tell us about what happened, and then let's get into how you found out it happened. Well, okay, so as it's no secret to, to people who pay attention to what my team works on. We have a project called Cartel Chronicles. Um, we operate in regions of Mexico where journalists get murdered for reporting on cartels. So we go there and report on cartels. And what we do is we, we provide an avenue for people who live there, whether it be journalists, citizen journalists, or other concerned people, um, who want to tell what they know about cartels and the corruption um, we allow them to do it under a pseudonym and then we publish it in English and Spanish so we're virtually the only news outlet coming out of several Mexican states along the border you know very recently the State Department declared that uh, several of these states along the border were as bad as they're considered the same safety risks for U.S. personnel and U.S. people as Syria and Somalia so it's, it's that bad um, there's that many people dying there. Uh, the cartels have that much control, right, uh, on, in the border regions, um, in some border regions. So we're there, and so we, we're privy to a lot that happens. So uh, in this particular case, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, first off, there were uh, a Gulf cartel cell was, was raided by the Mexican military and the Mexican Marines on the border. And they were caught with claymore mines, so they had anti-personnel mines on the border. That's that's concerning. Um, now we find out, and and we verified with the Mexican government that uh, with the government, the state government in Tamaulipas, which is a state below Texas, that they found uh, an improvised explosive device on in the pedestrian uh, area of of one of the international bridges connecting Laredo, wow. Texas, with Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, and Nuevo Laredo, Mexico is the headquarters for Los Zetas, which is one of the world's most ruthless transnational criminal organizations, narcotics cartels. Um, So what we see is we see a a tendency to do what they did a few years ago, which is they used a car bomb. So you start to see this tendency as they're suffering and as the government's cracking down on them, you see this tendency for them to start turning toward 
narco-terrorism like that like what happened in Colombia and that's a significant issue I think for Texans it's a significant issue for people who live in northern Mexico um, and, and that's where we're at you know so we we got that information uh, from a source we asked the Mexican government they acknowledged it in writing and we published it and and uh, it's gotten a pretty a pretty big reaction but almost every day we have something like this you know we reported several weeks ago about the claymores we reported several weeks before that that in one Mexican state they found over I think 254 or 257 um, clandestine mass graves were found uh, in, in the last seven years so uh, it's, there's a lot of violence occurring and there's just not a lot of reporting on it it's really sad you know, I think U.S. media outlets, for the most part, there's a lot of left-of-center people who are journalists or editors, and they don't want to report on what the reality is for people in northern Mexico because they think it supports a right-of-center narrative for, for border security. And then a lot of the right-of-center outlets don't want to report on the reality because it supports a left-of-center narrative for asylum and for why people leave. So... Uh, it, it leaves those people without a voice. You know, we're Americans. We we care about people. We report on people. We tell the stories of people all the way across the world um, who are suffering. And then people who are suffering even more intensely next door to us at our doorstep, and, and we just ignore them. And, and that's what we try to avoid. We try to do something about that. Well, let's take a break, and then we're going to get more into the precedent of the issue. And then I want to get really dig into how this problem in northern Mexico becomes a problem in other sides of Texas, in more rural communities, especially on the western half of the state. We're going to go to a quick break. He's Brandon Darby, little sister Lauren Huff across the way. Stick with us. Be right back on the other side of Texas. I was just 15 and out of control. Molded out of red clay and Baked in the West Texas sun to perfection is The Other Side of Texas with Jay Leeson. Adios, goodbye, amigos, I am leaving you today. Ain't nobody around this town. Hey, welcome back. In this segment is brought to you by Lubbock File Room, providing safe and secure document storage and shredding services to Lubbock and the surrounding area since 1992. For a free and hassle-free estimate, call 806-744-7666. That's 744-7666. We continue on now with Brandon Darby, Managing Editor of Breitbart, Texas. We're discussing, if you're just joining us, a story he broke today. Uh, IED device found at Border Bridge to Texas. Uh, precedent here. Uh, we've not seen IEDs yet. Well, um, no, we haven't. But, there, there, I mean, there's a lot at play here. You know, most people, uh, well, just frankly, most of the people who are talking about the border, um, whether it be on MSNBC or Fox News or CNN, and I'm not knocking, I'm trying to say that, so I'm, I'm trying not to specify any specific news agency, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm saying, like, across the board, most of the people talking about it don't know what they're talking about. They just don't have a lot of information about what areas really need more security, which areas don't, which areas, uh, why don't they, um, what has happened in the past when we've secured certain areas, and... Um, 
what what can we learn from that, right? And and how we secure things now. For instance, there's a lot of talk about the wall. They're like, well, we're going to build the wall, and then we're going to we're going to and and I'm I'm actually a fan of physical barriers in some areas. But they're like, we're going to build the wall, and it's going to stop the opium trade and these opium, these heroin overdoses that we're seeing. And but they say that, and the president even tweeted that um, something similar. But the truth of the matter is that most of the opiates that cross the U.S.-Mexico border come through the ports of entry in trucks and in train cars, right? And it has to do with public corruption. It either has to do with tricking our our, our uh, CBP officers at the border and our customs people, or it has to do with paying them off. And th- that's a problem that we have in the border regions is with public corruption. So even if you build the wall all the way to the moon, like you're not going to slow down the meth, the cocaine, or the uh, or the opiates, right? And then you're going to keep seeing overdoses because Mexican black tar heroin is not as good as is is heroin from Asia. It's just not. Um, and so, in order to compete, the Mexicans add fentanyl. And if they add fentanyl, then you're going to you're going to see a lot more overdoses. That's what we're seeing is the addition of fentanyl to heroin. Yeah. It's not the the heroin; it's the fentanyl in the heroin that's mixed in. So, uh, no one really describes that or talks about that in detail because they don't know what they're talking about. They just call for the wall. There are areas on the U.S.-Mexico border where we've already built a wall, like we already built a, a proverbial wall, like. Um, you know, barriers, concrete barriers, three-tiered fencing, two-tiered fencing in the El Paso sector. And when we did that, what did the cartel do? Did it stop the cartel? Did it slow them down? Not at all. What they did was they went from crossing people with stuff on their back, um, and they, they went to public corruption. They went to train cars and, and, and loading them in vehicles and overwhelming our systems at the border, uh, our, our, our customs checkpoints. So my point is is that we know already what's going to happen when we build physical barriers because we've already done it. And all this talk about the wall, and no one, including the president, is talking about the other factors that need to happen at the same time for a physical barrier to be successful. This, let's get back to the story for just a second. The IED is on the international bridge from Laredo to Nuevo Laredo. From Laredo, Nuevo Laredo to Laredo, actually, okay. on that okay. side. All right. So, but it's set up in a place where it could have killed a lot of pedestrians. It was set up, it was set up on the area where pedestrians use, yeah. So, first, why didn't it go off? And secondly, what's the extent of damage it could have done? Like, would it cause structural damage? I mean, well, here's the deal, though. They're using, they have claymores now. They they have Russian RPGs. Our, our reporting has shown that. We've, we've proven that with pictures and imagery. Um, they've used those Russian RPGs against governmental facilities. Um, we can see the damage that they do. Uh, so th- this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with transnational criminal organizations across the border, some of which have different, uh, they all have different characteristics, the organizations, but some have worse characteristics than the others. For instance, the Gulf Cartel, which is south of Texas, the Zetas, which are south of Texas, they have the worst MO um, than any of the other, really, any of the other Mexican cartels. There's a couple of others, but they're not right on our border, who do more brutal stuff. But really, it's those two organizations uh, who are doing this. So it was the Gulf Cartel caught with the Claymores. Now it was the Zetas territory where the improvised explosive device was was used. Did the Zetas do it? I don't know. Maybe the Gulf Cartel did it because they wanted to an explosion to hurt people and shut down you know, increase security for the Zetas so that the Zetas lose money and can't get stuff across. It's called like Calendar de la Plaza, like heating up the plaza, you know. Um, 
who knows, right? It's one of those two groups who did it, most likely. It's in the Zetas territory. Um, is it new that they, they would do something like this? No, they, they've done it before. Is it new that they would do it and risk uh, an increased U.S. Res law enforcement response? Yes, that would be new. Uh, not that long ago, two years ago, we reported this too. Um, we were the first to report it. Uh, there was a CBP helicopter that caught the Zetas bringing a drug load across. The Zetas opened fire with their AK-47s and, and forced the helicopter to land. And they shot down, for all intents and purposes, they shot down a U.S. aircraft, a U.S. federal uh, law enforcement aircraft from the office of, uh, of Air and Marine. That, you know, what, what is that? Like, well, that shows a willingness to, to, to make the U.S. angry. It shows a, a disregard for for the U.S. law enforcement response. And a lot of that comes from the fact that in the olden days, there were older men who were leading the cartels. They were more mafioso-like. They, they cared about long-term profit sustainability. They, they wanted to make their money now, but they also realized that if they crossed certain thresholds or certain boundaries, that it would affect them making money in the long term because it would evoke a response from the U.S., from U.S. law enforcement or intelligence agencies. But what happened is after we and the Mexican government went after that leadership and kept going after that leadership, it's left all of these young guys in positions of power. So now these young guys who don't care about tomorrow, who have cocaine or meth addictions, they don't care about tomorrow. They only care about today. They want to have women today. They want their cars and their money today, and they want to party it's today. It's like good fellas. Um, and they just don't care about tomorrow. And now, because they don't care about tomorrow, they're willing to do things that their predecessors weren't willing to do. And that's a problem not only for the U.S., uh, the safety of U.S. law enforcement and the safety of U.S. communities in these regions, but it's also a problem when it comes to counterterrorism strategy for the U.S., which has largely been based upon the idea that, hey, these cartels know not to cross a terrorist because they know that if they did, it would shut, their, shut them down. Well, they don't care about tomorrow anymore. So if somebody paid them enough money, they would. See, so it really impacts the, the nature of the criminal organizations and having a, a, a in-depth understanding of how each group operates, who's controlling each group, what are their, those people's characteristics. It's really necessary, not only for conversations about border security, but it's also in, in the drug war, but it's also necessary for conversations about counterterrorism strategy. And sadly, I, I just don't see anyone, uh, none of the people speaking publicly about it know what the hell they're talking about. And it, it's very sad. You know, most Americans don't realize this, and most people listening to the show don't realize this. But most of the people you see on television, on the news, they actually don't know what they're talking about. They're pundits, and what they do is they Google stories, they Google an issue and read what I wrote about it, and then they try to condense it into a, a, a political talking point. They get on, they have 30 seconds to make their point, and they throw out as, 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 uh, uh, as incendiary of a 30-second speech as they can to make a point. Well, the problem with the way we do news and the, the, our punditry class is that we have issues affecting our country that require an in-depth discussion, right? They require some background knowledge, and the only people we have talking about it are people who are Googling it and developing 30-second talking points. And that's why we're having the problems that we're having right now, I think, is, is we were set up in a way to encourage knee-jerk responses, emotional responses, and, and a lack of in-depth analysis. That voice you hear is Brandon Darby, Managing Director of Breitbart Texas, here on the other side of Texas. Let's back up for just a second. You know, we are 
discussing issues on this program from the other sides of Texas, and by and large rural areas, mid-sized to rural areas. And Brandon, this all seems to the context that you're giving for the change in leadership, almost like Henry Hill, Ray Liotta's character in Goodfellas. The old guys die off, he comes into power, and the whole thing falls apart. Um, the the age demographic shift with the cartels is certainly considerable, that they're willing to go further than their predecessors went, um, and they want instant gratification. These are like the millennial narco guys. Now, yeah, they are, so actually. They, yeah. Specifically, they are millennial narcos, yeah. But to the point about uh, receiving a U.S. law enforcement response, uh, you said earlier in the last segment that they're beginning to act out in narco-terrorism. Now, that inevitably... Uh, and unnecessarily, but inevitably, it's going to spill into this side to an extent that it has not already, which becomes a rural concern. It becomes a concern about funding for law enforcement, local law enforcement, sheriffs, those sorts of things, uh, sheriff departments in these parts of Texas, which just all, all of a sudden you become a player in rural politics in, in that uh, you're, you've got your eyes on this issue. How do you see this unfolding on, on the this side of the border in more rural regions? We're broadcasting from West Texas, so how is this going to begin to play out? This new class of narco terrorism. Well, I mean, we already have problems. I mean, how many of the listeners either have a relative right now dying of an opioid addiction? You're watching them kill themselves, or you have someone in your life, uh, you know, a friend who, a, a family friend who has someone in their life like all of us know someone dying of opioids or hurting themselves with an opioid addiction um or a meth addiction you know all of us have that affecting our lives it's affecting all of our communities some of our communities are dealing with it better than others but ultimately what's happening is 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 transnational criminal organizations are pumping uh, that into our country it's it, it, it to make money and the problem here is that we talk about border security and, and almost every politician in the GOP will say I'm tough on border security I want border security but if they sat with me and I say what, what does that mean they're like well I want a wall and it, it it shows me that people just don't know what the hell they're talking about like we, we have we're facing a crisis we have more people dying every day from opioids uh, and from methamphetamine and from cocaine than we know what to do with in this country and the simple fact of the matter is is people just don't know what the hell they're talking about there are areas I'm, I'm just going to break it down for you real simple there are areas that need physical barriers it is true we also need more to, more border patrol agents that is true right but the problem is is we we can historically look back not that long ago and say what happens when we add more agents on the border which means they they work between ports of entry what happens when we add more of them and we put up physical barriers between ports of entry what happens is the cartels focus on ports of entry and they focus on ports of entry through public corruption so any physical barrier you build any amount of border patrol agents you add which we all need to do those things but it's not going to do anything it's not going to affect the amount of drugs killing our communities it's not going to affect the criminal organizations in mexico unless you also take additional steps those additional steps are again if we're dealing with public corruption at ports of entry, what do you have to do? You have to increase the FBI agents, the number of FBI agents on the, in the border regions. You have to increase the number of DEA agents in the border regions. Most importantly, you need to increase the number of assistant U.S. attorneys 
available to prosecute cases in the border regions mm-hmm. because they can't get enough to live there. You have to do those things in order to properly go after this. And even that is not really going to stop the problem unless we talk about what's going on inside of Mexico. And what's going on inside of Mexico is it isn't the cartels or the big bad guys. There's an organized crime circle, and the cartels are part of that organized crime circle. But even the current Mexican president is connected to narco cartels. He was put into office with money from several cartels. This is a fact. This is not a disputable fact. Like Mexican politicians, for the most part, are connected to these narco cartels. They have financiers. They have attorneys. Every time a commander of a cartel gets murdered, that cartel commander is gone. Another guy takes his place. But all of the other people, the politicians, the financiers, the accountants, the launderers, all of those other people in that circle stay the same. Why do they stay the same? They stay the same because our State Department in Mexico, we're spending a lot of money, hundreds of millions a year, going after the, fighting the drug war in Mexico. But our State Department tells U.S. law enforcement agencies and U.S. intelligence agencies to balance their law enforcement priorities with the State Department's diplomatic concerns. How do you go after cartels if, in order to do it, you have to go after the politician who's also the diplomat you need to, you need to appease in order to have good trade? You can't. So th- we're, we're in this problem. So it has to be the changes I talked about on the U.S. side, but it also has to be changes to the way the State Department does business in Mexico. Because right now what we really have is we're watching our loved ones die. We have U.S. law enforcement personnel, county guys, city guys, state police, federal agents, getting their rear ends blown off and dying, leaving their families without a mother or father, fighting a drug war that on the highest levels of our government and the State Department in Mexico, they're actually complicit in, in, in saying, hey, back off these guys, back off these guys. That's the problem. It's What's that? to appease the American people. Here you go. It looks like we're <clears throat> doing a whole lot, but we're really not doing it. Well, it's not that they're not doing anything, but they're not doing enough. And I can tell you, because of my sourcing in Mexico, which no, no, even as much as some of the mainstream outlets hate Breitbart, most of them, well, from Jake Tapper all the way down, are going to say, thank you for the work you're doing. That's amazing stuff that Breitbart does in Mexico, but the rest of your company, we hate you. That's what they say. Nobody's questioning our sourcing in Mexico. And I'm going to tell you, our sources routinely find people on the Treasury Department's blacklist, and we report that to the appropriate people, and what we hear back is we seek no further information on these individuals at this time. So they're saying, leave them alone. We're not going after them. That is a problem. That's a problem. And so, so it's not right what's going on. And until you know, we can keep everybody distracted by talking about the wall, right, the wall, and, and I'm a supporter of physical barriers on the border, right, so I'm a supporter of, of segments of wall um, in some areas. But we can keep everyone distracted and act like that's the big golden nugget and that's, a, that's the pot at the end of the rainbow. But the reality is what our government is engaging in, what factions and sections of our government are engaging in, certain agencies, it's just not acceptable. It's not acceptable at all. And so until we do these things, we're going to keep seeing our community suffering from drug addictions. So it does become a rural issue. It becomes a rural issue in a significant way because they're not stupid. Like, they're not going to go into Lubbock County where they have all the resources to go after them. They're going to go to Hockley County. They're going to set up shop in Hockley County. That's what they did in the, in, in the Bakken region in South Dakota with the shale oil boom. And now that we have our shale oil boom in the Permian Basin, they're doing the same thing. Midland just reported that they found a headless body the other day. 
You know, like, who does that? Like, do I know that that's a cartel? I don't know that, but I can tell you that when you have shale oil boom, when you have the oil boom and you have the workers, you have the need for women, you have the need for meth, you have the need for other drugs, you have a lot of money. And that's what we're starting to see. And they're gonna, it's going to hurt our rural communities that don't have the resources to fight them, not, not our, our populist communities as much as our rural communities. Good work as always, Brandon Darby. You hanging around? I'm going to take off. Okay. Thanks for coming in. You can find that audio up at othersideoftexas.com. Always good. Uh, stick with us here, and uh, we'll get us a blue-collar bill report on the other side. Grab your partner, go hog wild. Welcome back in. I'm going to jump on the phone now. We got a guy who works and he works hard and he's got his blue collar. He is blue collar Bill. He calls in weekly and gives us the working man's report. Blue collar Bill, how are you, buddy? Doing good. How are you, man? Doing really good. Tell us what you've been thinking about, Blue Collar Bill. What do you have to report on? Uh, what, what's been on, on my radar is this uh, latest school shooting. Uh, and, and the fact that a, a lot of the major media outlets, including ABC and Politico and CNBC, are, have run with this headline that we've had 18 uh, school shootings so far this year. Uh, which is, uh, after I drilled down into it, uh, absolutely not true, but I did find something that, 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 that bothered me. What's that? Uh, three of the 18 school shootings involved active shooters. Uh, as we all know, or I guess if, if we hadn't been in a coma, we all know that these last two active shooters should have been picked up by the system and should have been flagged and handled accordingly. Why do you think uh, they are, Bill? Uh, well, clearly the Air Force in that second shooting was was not turning over the required information that is required of them to, to turn over to the system. Uh, they just failed to flag that guy. Yeah. Uh, this, this other kid, uh, I mean, everybody in the school knew he was, he was going off. Uh, and apparently the local police and the FBI knew he was going off. So... Somebody just, man. Like going off a cliff? Yeah, I yeah. mean, they, they, I mean I've, I've sat here all day long watching his, his classmates and former classmates and neighbors and teachers and friends and coaches, and they're all like, it was a whack job. We all knew he was fixing the snap. We told everybody he was fixing the snap. The, the red flags went up across the board on him, and nobody picked him up. So what do you think the aftermath's going to be with all this school shooter stuff in, in this well, last round? Seems a little well, bit different than the ones before it. It it, it does to me, and the, the the part that alarmed me on this was the 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 other fifteen incidents, uh, which included a discharge at a, at a at a at a criminal justice training center. Another one where a, a, a kid at a school program uh, discharged a, a cop's gun while it was holstered. I don't even know how you discharge a holstered weapon. I looked at my own. I, I can't figure that out. But a lot, these other 15 of these 18 that the left is claiming happened, the 18 shootings that happened, the other 15 were careless errors. And I'm afraid they're going to be used as ammunition to push more gun control legislation 
And while our president says he's a Second Amendment guy, it makes me nervous that he likes attention, he likes to spearhead things, and, I mean, before he became the Republicans' reincarnation of Reagan, this guy was a New York liberal and a friend of the Clintons and a huge Democratic supporter, so it wouldn't be uh, beyond uh, the thought that could be the first Republican president to jump on board with more gun control. So, well, my I, concern is, Bill, we have about a minute left. Why don't you tell us what you think? Um, what's the solution here? I think gun control begins at home. I think it begins in your house. It begins in your neighborhood, and it begins in your community. Uh, and I got to looking at the situation. I own several hunting rifles. I have no AR-15. I own a couple of pistols, and I went through and and looking at those other 15 avoidable incidents, they're being lumped in as a school shooting. I did an inventory and appraisement of my own system, which I thought was pretty good, and I found weaknesses in my own controls that in the right circumstance could could be a bad deal, and so I want everybody to take a look at their own situation, and is, are you practicing good gun control? Blue Collar Bill Report, right here on the other side of Texas. Have a good evening, buddy. Yes, sir. Thank you. There he goes, driving away. You know, he's a trucker. Yeah. Hey, before I get you out of here, I want to tell you that I'm 38 years old now, little sister, about to turn 39. Congratulations. And some people aren't excited that I've made it that long, but I'll tell you this. For as long as I can remember, there's been an American bank of commerce around me. There's this old adage that in Abilene, there's a church on every corner, but yeah. in Lubbock, there's a bank on every corner. <laughs> but there's a bank that comes to my mind, and it stood on Hub City Street Corners by the same name for as long as I can remember, and that's ABC Bank. And starting the other side of Texas Venture, I turned to a local banking institution that I could trust. A bank that has retained, you know, some of my college buddies still work. They worked there in college and they've stayed there. Oh, that's cool. It tells you a little bit about the culture of that bank. Uh, they've been providing top-notch customer service and loyalty since 1962. Do what the other side did and trust ABC Bank with all your banking needs. Check them out at theabcbank.com. That's theabcbank.com. 888-902-2552. I... I'm not going to have time to get into the bullet train story, but we are in the next couple of weeks going to get some folks on to talk about that huge issue, pitting property rights against uh, what some call progress there from Houston to Dallas. Really intriguing story to see how that unfolds, and we want to tell the other side of that story here on this program. So, until next time, you can always continue on with the show at Other Side Texas on Twitter, OtherSideOfTexas.com. You can subscribe there, be a part of that website, and have these podcasts, uh, podcasts of the radio show, delivered to you right there to your inbox. So, to borrow a line from the great Bob Bullock, only death will end my love affair with the other side of Texas. We'll see you next week right here on AM 580. I was a man when I was young. I'll be ready.